0: I met a cab driver some years ago who had no time for God. His life path was hard. It was strewn with heartache, loneliness, and shattered dreams. I suppose that living in rebellion against God, there had been a time when that seemed exciting and glamorous in his youth, but he had grown older, and the seeds of sin had produced a crop of misery. But it seemed the more he suffered for his sin, the more resistant he became to God and God's truth. He lived in rebellion against the Lord, as far as I know, right up to the very end. And the end came sooner than he had ever anticipated. He suffered a stroke that left him without speech and in a miserable state that was only complicated by his cravings for alcohol and nicotine. And a Christian relative asked me to visit him in the hospital before he died. He knew who I was. I'm not sure if we had ever formally met, but he had attended a sermon that I preached, and I scared him, frankly. But he knew who I was. I walked into the hospital and had to, first of all, negotiate past his atheist daughter who wanted nothing to do with me and did not want me there, but let me go in for a few moments and allowed me to be alone with him. I was told not to expect any response at all. So I entered the room, it's one of those strange situations. You don't know if the person possibly could hear you or not and I stood there by his bed. He appeared to be comatose. I stood by his bed and debated as to what to do, to just pray silently or to speak. And I decided to speak, hoping that he might hear something. And when I announced my presence, he knew who I was. He was running from God. And when I announced my presence, it was like he had been electrocuted. He jumped through his whole body, his back arched, and he made some of the most hideous groans and sounds that I'll never forget. He was in agony with my presence there. He couldn't speak. I don't know that he ever even opened his eyes, but he was very much awake. I shared the Gospel with him very briefly, read a few passages of Scripture. I was as troubled as I think as he was by it all. It was such a shock but I read a few passages of Scripture and shared the Gospel and prayed and left. Outside, the misery just continued. His daughter, the atheist, was ranting and raving. She could not even control her emotions. She was incapable of handling the ordeal. It was a, it was a chilling, joyless, horrifying scene. You learn about a, pers- a lot about a person by how he or she lives, but you can also learn an awful lot by how a person dies. As a general rule, godly people die well. Just ask those who witnessed the death of Jesus of Nazareth on Calvary. Remember, there were two thieves there that day, and one thief, both thieves, rather, together, the scriptures say, heaped insults on him. Both of them heaped insults on him, but later, one of those thieves said to the other, don't you fear God. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Jesus, he said later, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I would submit that it is in part how Jesus died that won that man's heart. He started the day heaping insults on Jesus. He ended the day praying to him. And you remember the centurion's response, Mark 15 and verse 39, when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. That centurion did not come to that situation knowing Christ or caring anything about him, but when he saw how he died, he said, he's God. How will you die? We think a lot about living in this culture as Americans. We are not too keen on thinking about dying. As a matter of fact, we have brought it to an art form to to almost entirely ignore any concept of death. But a deathbed may well prove your final crucible, the last testament to what you really believe the final reflection of your true character and the ultimate display of your final hope and love. Now, there are a few passages in the Bible where anyone dies any better than Jacob in Genesis 49. Jacob did not live a flawless life. In many respects, we might even struggle to say that he lived an exemplary life. He certainly did at places. He certainly did not at others. But Jacob died well. And he leaves for us a legacy to emulate as we pursue Christ's likeness and we pursue the one who died well on Calvary. Now let's consider the context here. If you'll notice in your text, chapter 47 and verse 28. Chapter 47 and verse 28, we have there the introduction of the last moments of Jacob's life. He lived in Egypt 17 years. The years of his life were 147 when the time drew near for Israel to die, he called for his son, Joseph, and said to him. We've looked at this section of Scripture, forty-seven twenty-eight through 31. There's a statement here of Jacob's dying. Then in chapter 48, We look through the blessings of Joseph. The blessing through through Joseph to Ephraim and Manasseh, his two sons. The firstborn position, the double portion given to these two sons. The blessing of Joseph. Then Jacob gathers all of his sons together in chapter 49. We looked at that most difficult passage last week. But there was a prophecy prophetic blessing upon all of His sons. And we saw there the most important, probably the most significant issue, if we would say, first of all, the distinction or the rising to prominence of Judah, and also of, of the tribe of Joseph, which would play so heavily into the future of Israel. But maybe most important of all in Genesis 49 is the rising to prominence of Judah. And again, the flashing lights guiding us from Genesis 3.15 through that line of Seth and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and then to Judah, and through Judah, a king who will reign and come and deliver his people. So to this point in the text, Jacob has been looking forward. In prophetic faith, he has been blessing his sons. But now, at verse 29 of Genesis 49, he turns back and he considers history. We look here in these verses at Jacob's death. And I might divide the chapter actually one verse later than we have in our translations, but I think through verse 1 of chapter 50, we have the report of Jacob's death. We notice here, first of all, his last words in 49.29, Then he gave them these instructions, I am about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave in the field of Ephron the Hittite, the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre in Canaan, which Abraham bought as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite along with the field. I'm going to be gathered to my people, says Jacob. That is an idiom for death. He had earlier asked Joseph to bury him in Canaan and now as his entire, all of his sons are gathered around, we would assume Ephraim and Manasseh and perhaps others, those are the ones that are mentioned, but they're gathered around him. Here he is with now all of his sons and he says to them as well, bury me in the land of Canaan. Now do you think these men knew where that cave was? It had been 17 years since they'd been in the land of Canaan, but do you think that they knew where that cave was? I can tell you the patriarch Abraham was buried there, Sarah was buried there, Isaac was buried there, Rebekah was buried there. They knew where this cave was. I don't think Jacob is offering directional information for his sons. I think what we have here is a man who's breathing his last. He's saying the last things that matter in life to him and he's saying, I identify with Abraham and with Isaac. He's identifying with the promised land. He's not identifying with Egypt. Remember the prestige and the the position that he enjoys here in Egypt. He has everything. But he says, my home is Canaan. And he points to his family grave. Verse 31, there, he says, Abraham and his wife Sarah were buried, and there Isaac and his wife Rebekah were buried, and there I buried Leah. The field and the cave in it were bought from the Hittites. Remember, we didn't take this from anyone. Abraham, my grandfather, purchased this. Now, do you remember back, if you can remember back that far to chapter 38, Rebekah's death was skipped in in the account. Be Probably because of her deception of Isaac, working with Jacob in that situation, the, the author of Genesis does not even address her death. But we do find here, in fact, that she was buried with her husband there in that family grave. It's also very interesting here, if you pick up this nuance, in choosing this burial site, Jacob chooses to be interred with Leah rather than with his beloved Rachel. I think that's interesting. His identification with Abraham rises above his own personal interests in Rachel over Leah. Abraham, the man in chapter 12 who was called by God from Mesopotamia to inherit this land and to inherit an offspring, it's this man with whom Jacob identifies, putting even aside his emotional concerns for Rachel and identifying with her. This is through and through an act of faith. We pick up pieces of it here, just the way that he makes the statement. The fact that he chooses to be interred with Leah rather than Rachel because of Abraham's presence all indicate to us that this is an act of faith. He is saying here very carefully, I identify with the land and I identify with the offspring because that is the promise of God. Now get the scene and the picture here. Again, Jacob is laying or, or sitting on the edge of his bed. His feet are probably over on the ground. Most would have laid down flat on the ground on just this thin mat. But he's probably raised here a little bit. He is a wealthy man at this point in his life. And the wealthy would have had beds that had been raised a little bit. So he's probably leaning, or sitting over sideways on the edge of his bed. And there are his sons all gathered around him. These are his last words. The window of time is almost shut. It's no time for foolishness or meaningless chit-chat. It's time to say what you really mean. To articulate what really matters to you. And what matters to Jacob is that he is counted among the people of God. He stands to receive the highest human honor known on earth to any man in his position, and that would be interment in Egypt. To be buried with distinction in Egypt, with great procession, with great mourning, his name would stand, it would seem for the ages in Egypt, but he chooses Canaan, a small family grave that no one would notice, but it's there, it's that land that God promised to us and it's with that land that I identify, the land of Abraham. Isaac and Jacob. It will not do to receive the honors of Egypt. It will not do to be here. I must go back to Canaan. And so what Joseph promised to do, he now appeals to all of his sons to inter him in Canaan. Verse 33, when Jacob had finished giving instructions to his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. Apparently still surrounded by his sons, Jacob draws his feet back up as he pillows his head for the last time. Those who stood watch may well have observed Jacob's breathing slow to long intervals between breaths. Then their voices faded in his ears as he entered the sleep of death. Jacob exhaled for the last time. It says here that he breathed his last, and it's a very fitting way to describe death by old age. He breathes his last. There's that last exhale and that noticeable sinking of the chest and fixation of the eyes. And then reality settles upon those who are holding their breath and watching. Jacob is gone. Death had claimed another life, but Jacob had died well. He had died well clinging to the hope of the future promises of God. And there's no better way to die than to cling to the promises of God and death. Jesus did that, we hear, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He clung to the joy that was before. In hope and in faith, Jesus died. Today, Jesus said to the believing thief, today you will be with me. In paradise, he clung in faith to the hope and the promise of God that was beyond death and beyond the grave. As Paul put it, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. There is this thick cloud of death, but beyond it there's glory. And those who die well cling to that hope that is before them. This leads, of course, then naturally to grieving. Joseph threw himself upon his father and wept over him and kissed him. We've noticed Jacob weeping several times, or Joseph weeping throughout the book of Genesis, throughout this narrative section from chapter 37, a number of times of weeping. Moses never records Joseph weeping when he is enslaved. He never records Joseph weeping through all of the trials and difficulties that he faces, but he records Joseph weeping three earlier times, a fourth here, all in context of his family, all in context of faith and reconciliation and redemption and the purposes of God. He cried, actually four times before, if we go back to 46, 29, when he was reunited with his father, but now he is torn from him. We could think long about these scenes of tears and what they have to say to us. Let me just say this briefly. What a privilege to weep freely in cleansing relief of genuine grief. And I pity those who cannot do the same. Joseph's heart was not so plugged up with bitterness. It was not so chained by the expectations of a twisted sense of manliness that he could not cry. Joseph could cry. Although Egyptians looked down on leaders crying, Joseph wept freely and he wept honorably at the passing of his father. Jacob dies. Verse 2 and following notice that Jacob is buried. Then Joseph directed the physicians in his service to embalm his father Israel. So the physicians embalmed him, taking a full 40 days, for that was the time required for embalming, and the Egyptians mourned for him 70 days. We find two very strange ideas here in these verses. First of all, the Hebrew word for embalm is not the common word, not the word that would typically be used at all. And secondly, we find a reference here to physicians embalming, and we have no extant record of physicians ever embalming in Egypt. Now, There's a lot to talk to Joseph when we get to heaven about all this, I suppose. There's an awful lot we can't figure out. But embalming from all records indicates that this was the job of priests. This was a religious act. It may be that physicians were priests. That might be one answer here. But it's also interesting how Moses chooses to write this. He turns the body over not to the priests to embalm his father, but to the physicians. And I, I just wonder, a little conjecture here, if we can do that a little bit. This isn't, this isn't gospel truth by any means, but it, I, I wonder perhaps Joseph turned them over to the, him over to the physicians on purpose so as not to be a ritual pagan act of embalming, as would have been typical with any chief official. But either way, Moses does not choose the word priests, as would have been expected, and he chooses a different word for embalm than would have been expected. At any rate, he turns his father over to be embalmed. That was quite a process. Not to go into too much gruesome detail, but there was a long slit in the abdomen on one side, a slit in the head and the brains and the entrails would all be taken out and very studiously, carefully preserved. They were bathed in palm wine, impregnated with strong chemicals so that they would be preserved. Blood was drained, the body was anointed with oil of cedar, myrrh, cinnamon, and casea, and then it was soaked in a chemical solution. The body was then wrapped in linen swaths which were smeared with, with gum. That is, that is not chewing gum, but the, a, a kind of gum that would, would uh, penetrate and smell very good and preserve the body. After 30 to 40 days, I've seen different uh, ancient historians saying 30, some 30, some saying 40. The body was returned to the family and they would put it in a coffin and did something very unusual to us. They'd take that coffin into a cave or if you were much more wealthy, or a pharaoh, put into a pyramid. And there they would stand it up against the wall. They would not lay it down, but they would stand it up, generally speaking, in some type of catacomb. Now that all reflected the theology of the pagan Egyptians. The way in which a culture chooses to bury its dead reflects something about the beliefs of that culture. People ask me all the time about cremation. I suppose we could draw something here from Joseph using embalming, which was not the typical Hebrew way, to say that it may not be all that big of a deal. However, with cremation or with burial, one thing I'm finding in the funerals that I do is that with cremation there seems to be a consistent connection between cremation and ignoring death. There just isn't the reality of death in such a a funeral. It's almost like it's not really happened. It's not really there, and instead of a body that is presented and seen, there is a picture of an individual. I'm not saying that that makes cremation wrong necessarily. I don't want to go there right now. We'll talk in private if you want to go a lot deeper. But my point is, whatever you do in preparing a body says something about your theology. What does embalming say? Why all of this attention? Well, the Egyptians had this belief. That the Spirit, once it left the body, would roam around through animals, various animals, any number of animals, for 3,000 years. After 3,000 years of roaming through animals, the Spirit would come back, and if the body was intact, would once again inhabit its own body, and all would be happy forever. But if the Spirit came back and found that the body was decayed or ruined or in some way uh, not capable of being possessed, then the Spirit was annihilated. And so the Egyptians went to all of this trouble to preserve the physical body so that the spirit could return to it. Now there's nothing wrong with embalming. There's a lot wrong with that theology, but there's nothing wrong with embalming itself. This obviously gives us some insight into the pyramids and even uh, the confusion that many have found with why can't we find where the body is in the pyramid once we get inside. There were reasons for that. The Pharaohs were seeking to do everything they could to keep anyone from ever finding their body, leaving it intact, standing against the wall, so that when the Spirit came they could walk out and live again in eternal happiness. Seventy days Jacob's body is, uh, 70 days are, there is mourning after this long period of embalming. Probably the 70 days includes the 40 days of embalming. According to an ancient historian, Diodorus, the Egyptians mourned for deceased pharaohs 72 days. This is a high honor for him to be mourned for 70 days in Egypt. We notice the arrangements now for his funeral. Verse 4, when the days of mourning had passed, Joseph said to Pharaoh's court, If I have found favor in your eyes, speak to Pharaoh for me. Tell him, My father made me swear an oath and said, I am about to die, bury me in the tomb I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. Now let me go up and bury my father, then I will return." Joseph communicates through other officials probably because he is not capable of entering Pharaoh's presence due to ritual uncleanness he's in mourning. We might see a parallel there. Remember the Mordecai situation in the book of Esther. He was not able to come in into Xerxes' court because he was in sackcloth, he was in mourning. So when there was mourning, you didn't bother a king and you stayed away from a king as a king would of this power would permit not one thought or emotion to come into his life that was imposed upon him by someone else. So if you said something, or you came into the king's presence, or you made him sad by your mourning, you you could be killed, he'd just take your life. That might be the situation here that there was this protocol that you do not mourn in front of a Pharaoh, which is probably why he sends message here through others. But his point is very clear. My father led me to swear an oath that I would bury him in Canaan. This refers back, of course, to 47, 29 through 31. Joseph wisely emphasizes the positive aspects of Jacob's earlier words. Obviously, he doesn't put in there the phrase, don't bury me in Egypt. He doesn't want in any way for, I mean, think about this. Pharaoh's an absolute dictator, if we use that phrase. He could tell Joseph anything he wants to tell Joseph. And so he has to go very carefully here, and he. Plans his words. He does not mention anything about Egypt. He just says my father made me swear He doesn't want to appear unappreciative of Pharaoh's hospitality or to speak ill of Egypt in any way so as to raise his ire The issue here though the critical point is the oath There is a solemn obligation here, and that is how the ancients would have taken it Our word is so easily broken in our culture. It's absolutely pathetic But in that day, you swore an oath, you had a sense of divine obligation. If you did not fulfill that oath, you could be destroyed. Your life could be made miserable by the gods, and people operated with that. Well, how does that affect Pharaoh? It's not just, I mean, put it this way, if Joseph's life is affected negatively, my life is affected negatively. I don't want Joseph to be under the curse of his God. I've seen how powerful his God is, and I've seen the blessing that God has given to him. If he has made an oath to his God, I don't want to mess with that. And he lets him return to his cave, which he dug out, uh, Joseph adds here, to Jacob's earlier words, verse 5. I dug for myself in the land of Canaan, he puts into Jacob's mouth, and, and very Probably, Jacob said that, though it wasn't recorded earlier. The point is that it was hewn out of rock. Don't think here of dig. We dig into the dirt. The ancient Hebrews, and to this day, for that matter with some, dig into the side of a hill, into the rock. They carve it out, they dig it out. It's a very long, tedious process. And he's saying here, I have a family cave. I have a family tomb that I've dug out, and I need to return. And Joseph makes that promise to Pharaoh. I will return. That's a very important point, isn't it? I will return. I'm not going back to Canaan. It's not that you'll never see me again. Just give me leave to bury my father. And so verse 6, Pharaoh says, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear to do. As he made you swear. Again, Pharaoh's permission seems to hinge on the oath that Jacob made Joseph swear. That was probably part of Jacob's original plan. It's interesting that Pharaoh does not repeat Joseph's promise to return, he fully trusts him. If Joseph will honor his word to bury his father in Canaan, he'll honor his word to come back to Pharaoh. And in fact, he does. This leads though to the funeral procession, verses seven and following. So Joseph went up to bury his father. All Pharaoh's officials accompanied him, the dignitaries of his court and all the dignitaries of Egypt. Let me just stop there real quickly and say that the officials, the Hebrew word is servants, and under that idea of servants, these are obviously not household servants, but officials, so I think it's a good translation. The dignitaries there is a word, the Hebrew word for elders, and again, it's, the idea is fine. But we have here officials, two kinds. The, the elders who ruled in his household, literally, rather than court, and all the elders who ruled in Egypt. Now we're not to think here that this is all of the every official in Egypt. I don't think there's any necessity to think that way because it is very common in Hebrew to say all when all is not intended. All of Israel gathers all the time. It's not every man, woman, and child that gathers. It's the officials that gather and there might be some officials missing. So that's what we're to get here. He doesn't empty out Egypt of every last official but in a general, encompassing way, representatives from all levels of government, perhaps, are there to go with Joseph. It is a large company of people. Verse 8, Besides all the members of Joseph's household, his, his sons, and his brothers, there's 11 of those, and those belonging to his father's household, Probably included their servants and perhaps many of the women. Only their children and their flocks and herds were left in Goshen. So the idea is anybody who can make this journey will. The idea of children being left behind would indicate that every woman would have gone as well unless there were children left that had to stay behind. And those women would have obviously stayed there with those children. Verse 9 chariots and horsemen also went up with him. It was a very large company. What's the point of chariots and horsemen? This is a military escort. We re, it reminds us of some years later, the charioteers of Egypt will be chasing the Israelites, but here they're accompanying them and taking them in a great company, a huge funeral procession into the desert. What a scene that must have been. Crossing the desert. Again, just take a look at the map here as he's, coming across to the west, journeying across that desert region there, working their way up toward Canaan. The dust would have been flying and Bedouins along the route certainly stopped and probably their mouths dropped as they watched this great procession, saying there must be some great king that has died. We find then in verse 10 that when they reached the threshing floor of a Todd, near, or the Hebrew reads, beyond the Jordan. It doesn't say which way, but beyond the Jordan. They lamented loudly and bitterly, and there Joseph observed a seven-day period of mourning for his father. As you look at the map here, we notice the final destination here uh, by Hebron facing Mamre. We'll get to that in just a few moments here. But Atad, we don't know where Atad is. There's there's no indication. There's an ancient mosaic that's been on Earth from the 6th century uh, that speaks of, I think it's the 6th century, but that speaks of uh, Atad as being right just above that northern part of the Dead Sea, right above where Jericho would have been to the north side of the Dead Sea. Now, you have to ask there, you look at the map. Would that be your route going from Goshen all the way around the Dead Sea, along the Dead Sea, and then crossing the Jordan River. That's a really rough way to get to Palestine. Obviously, they could just go straight. Once they went to the west, they could go straight north and enter up from the south end. Why do they not? Very possibly the same reason that the delivered Israelites centuries later will not go through that region. There are Philistine armies there and there are the Edomites there and this group probably skirts around them. It's in a sense a foreshadowing of the trouble that they're going to face as a nation later. So they go to the northern, as far as we can see, the northern tip of the Dead Sea and are preparing then to cross Uh, The Jordan River. As I mentioned, there's a 6th century mosaic map locating an Atad that is right there in that position, and we'll assume that that's the case. Now, it's beyond the Jordan, and so it is on the west side of Jordan. They cross the Jordan River, and there they stop for a funeral. Seven days of mourning, verse 10. They lament loudly and bitterly, and Joseph observes a seven-day period of mourning for his father. When the Canaanites, verse 11, who lived there, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said the Egyptians were holding a solemn ceremony of mourning. That is why the place beyond the Jordan is called Abel Mizraim. That is, the, there's a play on words here. It could be the threshing floor of the Egyptians, Mizraim is the Hebrew word for Egyptians, the threshing floor of the Egyptians, or it could be the field of the Egyptians, a number of different ways to take it, but the point is that there's a play on words with that word mourning, speaks of the mourning of the Egyptians. This scene got their attention. This made front page in the newspaper the next day. They really noticed these people mourning. This was a great event. And it says here that they saw, that they observed that they were mourning. So we probably have sackcloth and fasting and bare heads and bare feet and loud wailing. So not only the sound, but also the sight indicates a great mourning. Which leads to the interment of Jacob's body in verse 12. So Jacob's sons did as they had commanded, as he had commanded them. They carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre, which Abraham had bought as a burial site from Ephron the Hittite, along with the field. You see the basic location here on the map, uh, on the overhead, as to where that location is. But there, there is the field, there is the cave, and there now Jacob is interred. He's laid to rest in the family grave that stands as silent witness to the future promises concerning the possession of this land. But it's not not time yet to possess it. Israel must wait on God's timing. And we think back on chapter 15, verses 13 through 16, where God prophesied to Abraham, your people will be enslaved for four centuries in another country. We don't know how much they knew of that prophecy, or how much they considered it rather, I think they certainly knew about that prophecy without any question, but how much they considered it. Here in this situation, we're not sure, but they had to stay in Egypt. And of course, Joseph really has no other alternative but to return, to fulfill his duties. And with him, his family returns, verse 14. It's just a simple funeral, isn't it? I mean, it's a very amazing event, but we have all of the elements that fit into a funeral in our day. There is the death, and there is the preparation of the body, and there is the procession, and there is the funeral, and there is the interment, and what is it at the end of it all? We go home. The funeral is over, verse 14. After burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt together with his brothers and all the others who had gone with him to bury his father. It's all over. Jacob's body is interred. It's now time to head home, and there would have been a several-day journey here I I picture in my mind, maybe it's not the case, but perhaps the brothers sitting around a fire at night as they pillow their heads for the night and prepare for the next day's journey, talking about Dad and the life that he lived, remembering him and and the years that they had to spend with him. Certainly there as they talked or as they rode the next day and their thoughts considered their father, Undoubtedly, this is where the twinges of guilt begin to really rack their minds and their conscience. And we'll get to that, Lord willing, in the future. But the death of a parent is a particularly difficult time. It's a chilling witness to our own mortality. As one commentator notes, parents stand as a sort of barrier between us and the grave, they see, it seems. When they die, the source of our existence passes away and it becomes uniquely clear that we too face death. We as the children close their eyes and then turn around and realize that our children are now prepared to close ours. It's been a long ordeal for this family. Seventy days in Egypt, several days journey to Canaan, seven days of funeral, the days necessary to inter his body to bury Jacob and then the days to return. They're ready to see their families now certainly and to move on with life without Jacob in Egypt. Lord willing, we bring to close the book next week. I'd like us, again, here's my commercial break place. Just give your brain a quick shove. Let's work together for a few more moments. What we have seen here is the human element, and we've been reminded by Jacob's life to consider our own mortality and the meaning of our own death. But as always, what God is doing in the text of Scripture is something much larger than one individual. It's something, it has much more to say to you and to me than just the death of Jacob. This is not just an account with no meaning behind it. There is so much here. And I'd like us to labor just for a few moments together to consider this. Did you notice how long this narrative was? There's a lot, we've said this over and over in the book of Genesis never is ink wasted. There's a reason when the text stops and slows down and begins to emphasize something. This is a lot of ink about a man's funeral. How much ink was given to talk about Abraham's death? One simple phrase. How much was spent on Isaac's death? One simple phrase. How much is Moses going to invest in talking about Joseph's death? in the end of chapter 50, one simple phrase. Jacob, the whole process of the funeral. Now if you go back, this is where our long labors in this book start to come into play and really help us out. Do you remember going through chapter 24, everybody's eyes were rolling up in their head and we were dying. Sixty-some verses about a servant going and getting a mate for his master's son. And we said many times through that section, why such a long section? If it hadn't been long, we would forget about Genesis 24. It wouldn't mean that much to us, but Moses was careful to make that a very lengthy narrative so that it continued to get our attention. Why this long emphasis on a marriage? And we come here now to the end of the book and we ask ourselves the very same question. Why this long emphasis on a funeral? Do you see how the two work together so beautifully in the context of God's promise to Abraham? What are the two promises? An offspring and the land. Genesis 24 is what? Offspring, marriage. Genesis 49 and 50 here is what? The land. It is these promises of God to which the people of faith clung and Moses is telling us by expending this energy on Jacob's death scene that he's identifying with the promises of God We have the offspring, and there is the faith of Abraham. Abraham's faith was not uniquely demonstrated in his death, but it was uniquely demonstrated when he said to his servant, do not take a wife for my son from among the Canaanites. And if she refuses to come, the one that you choose, do not take my son there. We will live in the land, and we will marry outside the land. He was identifying with the promises of God for the offspring, and here Jacob with the promises of the land. Don't bury me in Egypt. Bury me in Canaan. But we see even more than the faith of Jacob here. What we see here is, in many respects, a prophecy. And I think we need to learn to read the Word of God this way, carefully, cautiously, but it's there throughout all of Scripture. There is a prophecy here. There is a foreshadowing here of the Exodus when Israel will again move from Egypt to Canaan. We have this company moving from Egypt to Canaan. It will happen again when Israel is delivered from Egypt in slavery. Remember the original leaders, uh, readers of this text are those who are leaving Egypt to come back to Canaan. And how are they going to close out this book in their mind? How are they going to conceive it and to think of it? We have to go to Canaan. Now, those original readers are going to find many reasons why not to go to Canaan, right? They're going to run into military troubles. They're going to run into food troubles. They're going to run into all kinds of difficulties. And what are they going to say along the way? Let us go back to Egypt. It was nice being a slave compared to this. What is is Moses teaching them as he counsels the nation? You have to go back to the land. Whether it's difficult or not, whether it's prestigious or not, you've got to go back to the land. You must identify with the promise of God. You have to live, you hear it? You have to live in faith. You have to live with confidence in the future. It's tough now as we've left Egypt. It's difficult on this journey, but God has promised us Canaan, trust him and act in accordance with his promise. There's a greater prophecy here. Let me add this as well. Isn't it interesting that when Israel comes back to Egypt after slavery. They're bringing somebody's bones with them. Who is that? Joseph. Joseph comes with them. Uh, Centuries later, and praise God and his providence for embalming, huh? But they bring him back. We'll get to that, Lord willing, next week. But all of this journey is prophetic. But there's more to this prophecy. I'd like you to turn to the minor prophets. We're gonna spend just a little bit of time here. Just bear with me a little bit longer. This gets really exciting. I, I promise you. If you're awake at all, if you followed any of this. But uh, go to the book of Hosea, the tough one to find. Hosea. And then if you'll find the book of Matthew, Hosea 11. And then the book of Matthew. If you think the New Testament writers never read the Old Testament, you have really got some things to figure out. They read the Old Testament carefully and in a way that was sometimes seems very strange to us. The Old Testament and Genesis itself is the seed from which the whole Bible stems. There's no disconnect between the two. They flow very well together. There's a tremendous unity between the two. In Hosea 11 and verse one, we read this. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. No Old Testament saint reading that passage would have any difficulty with interpretation. The interpretation is very clear. What is the reference? God delivered Israel from Egypt, right? But there's a prophecy there and Matthew picks up on that prophecy, Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, describing the early life of Jesus Christ, says something very strange to our ears. But he says in verse 13 of Matthew chapter 2, When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother, brought that during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Hosea, out of Egypt I called my son. There is a fulfillment here. Now we go back to Hosea 11 and we know very clearly it's a reference to the deliverance of the Israelites out of Egypt as slaves. But we are being told here by Matthew that there is in a unique sense a greater fulfillment and that is the coming of Jesus out of Egypt into the land. What land? The land of Canaan, the land promised to Abraham, remember to Genesis chapter 10, the land that in that unique genealogy is marked with an X, where God says as early as Genesis 10, it is here. This is the spot of redemption. Out of Egypt, Israel comes back to the land. Out of Egypt, Jesus comes, and there in Canaan, having been delivered from Egypt, in a sense, he will die. And redeem his own. Christ will return. There is a prophecy in even, I think, in Jacob's interment, in his funeral process, there is a prophecy of Israel's deliverance and even of Jesus coming out of Egypt to establish righteousness in Israel. And where will Jesus return? Obviously, there are many prophetic links here, but He will return to set up His kingdom. We talked about this earlier in the adult class. Isaiah chapter 2. Let's look at it a little bit further. Isaiah chapter 2. Just a few more passages. Just a few more moments here. Notice Isaiah 2. We're drawing links here between what has happened with Jacob in the text we've considered and what will happen through his son Judah Through Jesse, through David, through Messiah. Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 1. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. You see Judah, chapter 49, a critical, crucial block in all prophecy. Judah. Through concerning Judah, verse 2, In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Chapter 11. Chapter 11 of Isaiah, and verse one 11:1 1 of Isaiah, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, That is, Jesse's tree will be knocked over, but a shoot will come out of that stump and will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the Spirit of counsel and of power, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And it goes on to explain how this ruler will rule with righteousness and justice. And then notice verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse, what root? This root that shoots up out here, this root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his place and rest will be glorious. In that day, the Lord will reach out His hand a second time to reclaim the remnant that is left of His people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cushion. on and on it goes. He'll raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel so there will be a return of the Israelites from various nations, and they will be brought again to Canaan. They will be brought again to the Promised Land, and there, this child coming through Judah will reign Messiah over Israel who returns, and over the Gentiles who come with them. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, go to Amos. Just a few pages further, or a few books further into the Minor Prophets. Amos, Amos 9. Just one, one more place after this. You'll bear with me, Amos chapter 9, verse 13. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. Notice this now. I will bring back my exiled people Israel. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land. Never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. And then Zechariah, a little further back, toward the end of the Old Testament, Zechariah. Zechariah chapter eight. I'll put, draw this together in just a few moments. Let me just read the passage. Zechariah chapter eight and verse one. Zechariah 8.1 The word of the Lord Almighty came to me. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very jealous for Zion. I am burning with jealousy for her. This is what the Lord says. I will return to Zion and dwell in Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth. And the mountain of the Lord Almighty will be called the holy mountain. Notice what happens there. These are beautiful words. Verse 10. Before that time, there were no... Uh, I'm sorry, verse 20, verse 20, verse 20. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Many peoples and the inhabitants of many cities will yet come, and the inhabitants of one city will go to another and say, let us go at once to entreat the Lord and seek the Lord Almighty. I myself am going, and many peoples and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem to seek the Lord Almighty and to entreat Him. This is what the Lord Almighty says, In those days ten men from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, Let us go with you, because we have heard that God is with you. We see, I think, just the seed thought of Israel returning to the land as Jacob leaves Egypt in a coffin. And along with Jacob come Egyptians accompanying his body. It is all prophetic of the regathering of Israel someday from all the nations of the world as they will come in the millennial reign and Christ will rule over them. And all nations will join them in coming to Jerusalem and hearing from the Lord. What a beautiful day that will be. I believe that day is coming. I don't believe that's a fiction, and I don't believe it's something that has been displaced in God's history. But I believe that this is the promise at the heart of Genesis and the promise that unfolds throughout all of Scripture, that Jesus Christ will reign in a millennial kingdom where the land itself will be renewed. The nations will gather at the feet of Jesus, and they will be saying something they're not saying today. They will be saying, let's go to church so to speak. Let's go and hear from Messiah. Let's hear what He thinks. Let's hear what He says. That will be the hottest ticket on earth. It's not going to be some concert. It's not going to be some sporting event. It's not going to be the Olympics. It's not going to be anything else. The greatest ticket on earth during that time will be to go and sit at the feet of Messiah and hear His wisdom. Jacob didn't know fully with what he was identifying. He died in faith clinging to the information that he had that this land is the land. With what greater wisdom we can die. Clinging to the truth that Jesus is Messiah and he will come and this world will be renewed and clinging to that hope that we will be resurrected from the dead and live with Christ for eternity. What a joke it is to say that when I get to death, I'll start clinging to these truths. We need to live in light of these truths every day of our life. And it comes down, I think, to maybe if we could put it in this analogy, do you view death as a graduation or as a termination? Have you ever been terminated, fired from a job? That's not an enjoyable thing at all. It's happened to me. Somebody once said, you never lived until you've gotten fired. <laughs> I lost my job when I was in high school once, it was a hard thing, it's hard to be terminated. There's no joy, there's nothing to look forward to, there's nothing but regret. There's a lot of people that die that way. Life for them is a termination. Everything they hold dear is here and they leave it. Or do you look to death as a graduation? It's the end of work as it looks into a new day of greater labor and greater responsibilities before the Lord. Is it termination or graduation? Jacob reached forward in faith, seeing death as graduation. He had come to the end of his life, clinging to the promises of God. That's a great way to die. But you're not going to die that way unless you live that way. How will you die? To what will you cling If you cling to the things of this earth, if you cling to Egypt, your death will be a termination and it will be painful. But if you cling every day to the promises of God and the hope that is in Jesus Christ, you will die well. And you will die by God's grace in joy, despite the pain. For remember Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, and when he died, said in confidence. And in strength, it is finished. That's the way to die. This world is not going to instruct you along these lines this week. But remember what matters. And die well. Let's pray together. Our Father, we sense our weakness as we know in life there are many times when we compromise and we fail. And so it worries us, Lord, to know what may happen in our death. But God, we just can do the only thing we can do, and that is to cling to You and hope. I pray that we will do so as a church, as individuals, that we would be learning to walk in faith, that we might die well because we have lived well. We thank You for Jacob and for his example of faith as he finished off his life clinging to the promises of God, may we do the same. Lord, there may be some among us here today who do not have an intimate saving relationship with Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that you will show them that the Jesus who came is coming again and that they must do business with him now. I pray, Lord, that you will show them the forgiveness of sin that was purchased by Christ's death and resurrection. And I pray that you will draw your people to yourself, that you will call people to this saving message. And if there would be one among us here today, we plead for their salvation and plead that they would turn in repentance to embrace Christ as the coming King who reigns today in heaven above. We thank you, God, for these promises, and I pray that through this endeavor today, this lengthy discussion, that our faith will be strengthened and emboldened to cling to your promises until death parts our spirit from our body. May we die well is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. May we sing what has probably become